0: Now, please open our Bibles, there's Bibles in the pews there if you don't happen to have one with you, but open a Bible up and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I have, at times, in times past, visited and discussed with you on Easter Sundays, this amazing conversation that's recorded, that goes on between Jesus and these two fellows who are taking a journey um, to Emmaus. And I want to—it's been a long time though since I have, and so that's what we're going to talk about here today. Um, So we're going to pick up uh, in verse 13. Deacon Steve already read from the pulpit up here, verses 1 through 12 this morning. And now we're going to pick up in verse 13. Let me say another prayer for us over our teaching time here today, and then we'll read. Our Father, in our worship, and our worship is all of this, Lord, just the fact that we assemble, we assemble on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. Every week we meet on the first day of the week to commemorate your resurrection, because that's the day of the week that they went to the tomb and found that it was empty. So every week's a commemoration of that, just the fact that we gather on that day. But here, Lord, in a special way today, we've gathered on the first day of the week, and we pray that even that act of getting together you would receive as worship from hearts that love you. And desire to give you thanks and praise you. And everything we've done, our singing, even our fellowship, our prayers, all of it is brought before you as worship. And even this time now, where we want to just sit and listen to your word and be reminded of these accounts that are written in your word, that about this time every year we come back maybe to the same few things, but uh, we need to be reminded again and again. And help us, Lord, not to ever let it grow stale in our minds or in our hearts, but be amazed and be, be filled with gratitude and humility and, above all, faith in you. Teach us through your word now, Lord, we pray. Let your will be done in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 13. Now behold, two of them who's them. Them are his followers, right? Two of them were traveling that same day, that is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. All these things that happened being the great commotion in Jerusalem, over the crucifixion of Jesus and the great tumult that was rising there and then the burial and the soldiers guarding the grave and then all of a sudden, you know, the earthquake and then the, this report already beginning to spread that Jesus had risen from the dead. So they're walking, these two guys, and it says they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was... While they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Right? Boy, were these guys about to realize that. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And and then, you know, Jesus being Jesus here says, What things? (laughs) You got to love Jesus sometime, right? I mean, there's just times where you, you just look at him as a man and it's just like, these just awesome, right? What do you, whatever, whatever could you possibly be talking about? Fill me in. I'm not sure, I, I'm, not sure I'm aware of it. No. What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find His body, they came saying that they'd also seen a vision of angels who said He was alive. And certain of those who were "...with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not find, they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory?" And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward the evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the Scriptures to us? Amen? You can read on for yourself after that. They get up. They return. Well, let me just read a couple more verses. Why not? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven, right? The disciples minus Judas Iscariot. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. <laughs> but they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise within your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marvel, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. I tell you, there's so many things in that passage of Scripture that I'm sure I could keep you here all afternoon and give you my thoughts on all of that. And if we exchange thoughts, we could probably be here all through the evening as well. Because I'm sure you have lots of things. But there's one particular aspect of this that I love to focus on when I read this. And it just, it just makes such an impression on me. And it kind of appears in the first half of that. So, so these guys are like on this walk. They're journeying to Emmaus, and, and journeying was a big deal back then. Like, if you and I were driving somewhere seven miles away, like, what's, like, seven miles away? Maybe Newark Airport is about seven miles away, right? So, like, I've done this many times. You drive up there, you drop somebody off or pick somebody up, and you come back. No big deal. It takes about a half an hour, right, if, if you hit it at the right time. So, but, look, for two guys back then to, like, travel from Jerusalem to Emmaus, I mean, that's their day, right? I mean, that's it, because they're traveling, they're walking, they're on foot. That's a long walk, seven miles. I remember actually saying years ago that, for myself, I had, I had, there was one Easter that I had preached about this passage many years ago, and that previous summer we had gone traveling somewhere out west, and and we were in a national park, and we went on a seven-mile hike. And I remember after that seven-mile hike, man, I was worn out. And I, I can't even imagine it now, all these years later, as I'm older and, and everything else. But, uh, but these guys went for a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So that would have taken probably a long time, right? So they have a lot of time to talk, and they have a lot of time to think. And they have a lot to talk about, don't they? Because these guys were part of this group, that had followed Jesus. They weren't of the 12, well, 11 now, right? Cleopas was not, and the other person is not named. But, uh, but they were part of that group along with the women, and there were a, a group of disciples. Not too many days after this, there'd be 120 of them actually gathered in the upper room when Pentecost came in, in Acts chapter 2. So there's a little band of people. You know that are, that are gathered together and thinking about these things. And Cleopas and his friend decide to go to Emmaus. And so they're on this long walk. And they're talking about what happened. And then Jesus, in some way that's not described, is unrecognizable to them. Uh, he becomes recognizable later. But he appears walking with them. And so now they have three guys walking down the road. And he asks them about their conversation. What are you talking about? And why are you sad? Right? That is like the first insight in the story to the fact that they didn't quite grasp everything yet. Right? I mean, sure, there would be a sadness because they had walked with Jesus for those three years and they loved him. How could you not love Jesus when you saw the things that he did and, and listened to the things that he said? I mean, in fact, that's what they go on to say, right? They said about Jesus, they said he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. That was their description of Jesus. Good thing they gave a good description of Jesus while Jesus was there walking with them, right? And they didn't recognize who it was. Good thing they didn't have anything critical to say, you know, not that anybody ever would. But that's what they said. He was mighty in word and in deed. In other words, the stuff that he preached was amazing and the stuff that he did was amazing. And it was amazing before God and it was amazing before all the people, and, and, and in their mind, he was gone now. And so they're sad because they loved him and he was sad. What didn't they get? They didn't get that this was all part of the plan. You're here today on Easter morning because you know the story that Christ rose from the dead. But for these moments here, we, we take for granted that we know the story, right? We can read it in the Bible and you should read it in the Bible, and you should be well-versed in it. You should believe it. And you should love it. And you should think about it every day. And you should praise God and thank God for it. And you should share it with others for sure. Right? But these guys didn't quite get it all yet. Right? So what kind of conversation are you having? And first they say, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and you don't know what happened? You know? And, and like I said before, Jesus is like, what things? What are you talking about? What happened? Right? That's awesome. That's Jesus being Jesus. Right? It's just great. There's love in that, isn't there? What, I, mean, I mean, Jesus could just burst in at that moment and just reveal who he is and explain everything. But he says what things? Why? He wants to hear what they have to say, right? He wants, he wants to listen to them. Don't loving people do that? Isn't that how we ought to be, like even when we want to explain things to people? We want to preach the gospel to them. Find out what they think. Take a minute. Get to know them. Find out where they're at. You don't need to spend like days and days and weeks getting to know someone. Jesus here in a moment. Jesus here in a moment says what things? He can see they're sad. He knows already. But he wants to give them a chance to like talk. Right? It's not surprising that Jesus who created people To be relational was the master at being relational, right? No surprise, no surprise. So, you know, I read verse 19 for you already. And uh, verse 21, let's focus in on this for a minute. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. There's There's the rub. There's the big issue in the whole thing. There is the statement that reveals that they didn't get it. They didn't quite understand it. If you recall, like last Sunday, we observed Palm Sunday, right? Palm Sunday, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. And the crowd is going crazy. You know, the crowd is like waving the palm branches, and they're, they're 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 quoting from the Psalms, and they're quoting from Zechariah, and shouting these things out: "Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel!" Right? Because they had in in they had in their preconceived expectations and understanding of things come to. Realized that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, but their understanding of who the Messiah was and what the Messiah had come to do was flawed and it was wrong. But they had come to believe it. And so what they expected was when Messiah entered Jerusalem that he was immediately going to confront, presumably, Pilate, the Romans, Herod, who happened to come down from Galilee for the Passover at that time, and everybody who ruled harshly and in their minds wrongly and incorrectly over them. They knew the words of Isaiah. They knew the words of Jeremiah. They knew the words of their prophets who had promised that one day things would be get back to the way they were. And they would be living in their land that God had promised to their ancestors. And and there would be the Messiah who would come and would sit on the throne of David and would rule them, right? They knew all those things. And Jesus' miracles made them think that this was Him. And of course, they were right, in a sense. It is Jesus, the Messiah. But they didn't have in their minds their understanding was still darkened to what it was that Jesus came to do. What Jesus came to do was much bigger than what men expected of Him. And isn't that very like God? God does not reveal Himself to us so that we can incorporate Him into what the expectations of our life are. And men do that all the time. We turn God in our minds into something that He's not. We turn God into someone who's there for me. We, he's there for me when I need help to cry out to Him. And, and we turn God into someone who's just kind to everybody. And we turn God into someone who, who, like, the biggest thing that every man does is they turn God into someone who approves of them. That's, that's what most people do. Well, God understands me and God made me like this. And, 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 and God, God is like, I, I, you know, people will say, I have a wonderful relationship with God when they don't know one thing about him because he, here's where he's revealed, right? So their expectations were the parts of the prophecies that were favorable to them. That's what they expected Jesus to come and do in that moment. So that's what they say. We thought it was going to be Him who was going to redeem Israel. We thought this was the Messiah who was going to come. The inference is, we don't believe that He was now. Because if He was, why would He have died? Right? Like, like, like when He came, why did He just let the religious leaders hand Him over? And why did He stand there as the scripture says silently and didn't even open his mouth when they were making all these false accusations against him why so they had sadness because not only did they miss Jesus but now they're like i don't i don't i don't think this is who i don't think this is who we thought he was going to be and then on top of that now you have this they actually say besides all this Today is the third day since these things happened. And, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they had gone back to his tomb because the day in the middle of his death and his resurrection was the Sabbath. And so they observed the Sabbath by staying home. But then they were going to go back to the tomb hoping that someone would roll the big stone out of the way so they could go inside and anoint his body. Because if you remember the story of his death on Good Friday, uh, he died and um, it was getting late in the day. And that's why they had to break the legs of the thieves on the two crosses next to him because the Sabbath was coming and the Jews needed to be home and in and uh, observing the Sabbath by sundown. So in haste. They put him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Then they spent the Sabbath at home. And then on the first day of the week, they were on their way to the tomb because they, wanted, they were hoping someone would roll the stone out of the way. Who knows if someone actually would have or not? Probably not because it had been sealed by Pilate and by the Romans. But they were going to go in and anoint the body of Jesus in a proper way. So that's what these women were going to do. And when they got to the tomb early, they didn't find his body. The big stone had been rolled out of the way and the body was gone. And you know this, right? You know the stone was not rolled out of the way to let Jesus out, right? Jesus made stone. Jesus, the the Lord spoke and stone came into existence. So there's no stone that held him. The stone was rolled out of the way. You never read that in any of the gospel accounts that the stone was rolled out of the way to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled out of the way to let them in so they could see that he was gone, Right? So they astonished us. They got there. They didn't find his body. And they had a vision of an angel, which is recorded in one of the other Gospels, who said that he was alive. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Right? That was angels who spoke that to the women. So, here you get... Just skip ahead now. And here's where I want to focus in. On Christ's reaction in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones. Which I think is just a statement of fact, he's not mocking them. I don't think he's disparaging them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So now here comes what? Here comes the correction. Here's the really powerful part of this account right here. Their understanding is partially right, but because they don't have it all right, they're sad and they're ready to throw the whole thing away. But Jesus is like, what? He makes reference to all, the prof- all that the prophets had spoken and asks the question, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? What is Jesus doing there? He's pointing them to what? What? He's pointing them to the thing that you're holding in your hand right now. Same, same, same. He's Now, they didn't have the New Testament written yet, but he's pointing them to the Scriptures. Amen? So you ought to just, if you don't take anything else out of this today, take this. Jesus, when he wanted to point people to the truth, pointed them to Scripture. He pointed them to the words of the prophets. It says, you know, didn't the prophets say this? Isn't the Christ supposed to suffer? Because you'll see in a minute, that's exactly what the prophets said. And he even, it says, it goes on to say that he started with Moses, meaning he started in the very beginning of what we would call the Old Testament. He started in the very beginning of the book and started to go through all the scriptures and explain to them what the scripture really taught about Messiah. They had an incomplete understanding of who God was and who Messiah was. Because they didn't know the book. May I say to you, that is true of so many people today. Nobody knows God. Nobody fears God. If you read the Bible cover to cover one time in your life, you will know more about God than probably 99% of the people on planet Earth If you read your Bible every day, you will know more about God than the vast majority of people sitting in church right now. They did not know what the Word of God taught about God. And Jesus is about to point them to the Scriptures to show them who God really is and what God's really about and what His plan was really about. They were sad because Christ suffered and died. He's about to show them that's exactly what God said in the Scriptures was supposed to happen. You understand? If you take nothing out of this today, this Easter, this Resurrection Sunday, the thing you ought to take out of it, and I, listen, I can't, I can't emphasize this enough. The greatest thing any human can do for themselves in this life is get your nose in this book. And read it. Do whatever you have to do. Set some time aside. I, I've discovered recently the beauty of, of, of listening to it audibly. Right? And I've been reading it in the book my whole life. I've just, just now, after over 30 years as a Christian, discovered, hey, you know, it's pretty good to actually listen to. It. I mean, there was a long period of history where people didn't really read. Not everybody, A lot of things were like, like distributed orally. You know, you get an app on your phone. It's free. And you just sit and you listen to God's Word. You, listen, whatever it takes whatever you have to do, if you don't know what this book says, if you don't know what this book reports, if you don't know what this book teaches, you don't know God. You look at creation and all the heavens declare his glory. You look at humans and you see the intricacy of humans and the Who can understand the inner workings of humans, their will and their instincts and their emotions and their thoughts? All of that points to the fact that God exists. So the existence of God can be clearly seen and understood without this book. But then to know that God, to know His identity... And who he is and what he thinks and what he teaches and how he feels about certain things and how he interacts with humans and what he has done and what he still plans to do. That's here and only here. And if you're not in this, you don't know him. And Jesus is making that point basically here right now, isn't he? Jesus is about to break down scripture for them on a seven mile walk. So they're about... How's, how's that for walking with him and talking with him along life's narrow way? Right? Now, let's talk about this a little bit. Because it says in verse 27, this is my favorite verse in the whole passage. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them... He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so, what I'm going to do today... I'm going to expound all the things in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. No, I'm not going to do that. Unless you have time to go for a seven-mile walk with me, which I'm telling you, you see me, right? Seven miles is going to take a long time, (laughs) right? A lot longer than it used to. So it says that he started in Moses. Now, I want you to listen to this. If you want to jot these references down, and every one of these should be well known to you, Right? But it says that he started in Moses. And you may not even realize how much the Old Testament teaches, not just about who Jesus is, but about specifically what he did. Right? So Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 17 says this. And the Lord said to me, that's Moses, right? It's Moses writing this because Jesus started in Moses, we're told. So let's start in Moses. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. That's Moses speaking, if you will. It's the Lord speaking. It's, it's Moses It's Moses writing and quoting the Lord, right? So it's God's words, but it's when Jesus says he started in Moses. Moses is the one that wrote that down, right? Because it's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So right there in the beginning, codified into the law was that while God was giving all of these commands to Israel and telling them, They need to follow them and obey them. And if they obey them, then God will keep them in the land. But if they disobey, he'll turn and fight against them. Codified right into all those commands and all of those laws was, the day is going to come when I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses. But he's going to be much greater than Moses. He's going to be the greater Moses, if you will. I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, and he's going to speak my words. And whoever listens to him, good. Whoever doesn't listen to him, no good. That's basically what he says, right? That's a reference to Jesus in, Deu- in, in, the, in the law, in Deuteronomy. That's a reference to the Messiah who would rise up. You know, you could back up even farther than that if you wanted to. And I wonder if Jesus did. I, I, I actually have no doubt that, that I'm very confident that Jesus must have shared that passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy with those guys. Maybe he shared this one back a little farther from Genesis chapter 3. You know the story of Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis 3 is where uh, uh, Adam and Eve sinned and fell. And so the Lord, when He discovers, not that the Lord didn't know, but when the Lord reveals to them that He knows what happened, He brings these judgments upon Adam, upon Eve, and upon the serpent, right? And so to the serpent, in Genesis 3.14, says the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, That is deceived Eve. You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Ready? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's in Genesis chapter 3, and that points ahead to Jesus. Because God, who had created Adam and Eve, was there announcing, somewhat cryptically, right? But he was announcing there that the day would come when a seed of the woman, that is a descendant who is born by, a human that is born by natural means. Every one of us is descendants of Adam and Eve, right? Including Jesus in the flesh. There was going to come a day when one of the descendants of men, one of the descendants of Adam and Eve, was going to crush the head of the serpent, which is a fatal blow. But the serpent was going to bruise his heel, which is a non-fatal blow, which is a reference to what? The fact that Jesus died, but that wasn't like a permanent death because he rose from the dead. That's the bruising of the heel. But when Jesus rose from the dead, it completely destroyed all the work and the power of sin and of Satan. That's the fatal blow that he crushed his head. You get that? So right from the beginning, Genesis, Deuteronomy, you see all of these passages of Scripture that point to the fact. These are things that Jesus was probably sharing with these guys as they're going on this seven mile walk. You come later to the book of Numbers. I read this one just because I love it so much. But I read this passage because Jesus made reference to this passage in Numbers chapter 21 when he was having a conversation with Nicodemus and spoke what is probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Listen to this from Numbers 21. They, that's the children of Israel, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That's how they described the manna that God gave them every day. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents among us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, ready? Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And in John chapter 3, Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, this very powerful and influential rabbi who had come to him at night and said, We know that you come from God because no one can do these things unless God is with him. Among the things that Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was, Just as Moses lifted up the fiery serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that great? That that passage... In Numbers 21, when that happened to the children of Israel, that act of God telling Moses to make that snake out of bronze and put it on a pole so that everyone who looked at it would be healed, that, without them even knowing it at the time, was a picture of what Jesus was going to do when He was lifted up on the cross and gave His life and died for everyone's sins, as many as who will, by faith, look to Him and believe. And then Jesus gave the famous verse that everybody knows by telling that the motivation by which God did it was love. God so loved the world. And so there's three passages from Moses, Deuteronomy 18, Genesis chapter 3, Numbers chapter 21, that are all clear pointings, and it's, that's just three out of numerous, numerous passages. I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface of how the entire Levitical law was pointing ahead to the fact that only the sacrifice of Christ could take away people's sins. Or the whole design of the temple with the veil in place that, 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 that kept people separated from God. And when Jesus died, that veil miraculously ripped in half. All of it, all of it, was to point ahead to Christ. And Jesus, when He rose from the dead, had seven miles of walking to break all of this down for these guys. Right? I wonder if He backed up even a little further than His crucifixion and quoted for them Zechariah nine. Zechariah nine is what the crowd was chanting on Palm Sunday when He came into the city. Zechariah 9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but when you read the passage of scripture about how Jesus came into the city on Palm Sunday, if you read it carefully, Jesus actually says to his disciples, Go and go to this place, and when you get to this place, you'll find a donkey there. And tell the owner that the Lord has need of it, and he'll give it to you, right? And then, so the point is, Jesus deliberately, in that moment, instructed them to get that donkey. Jesus, of course, knowing Zechariah 9.9. Jesus, of course, knowing that Zechariah 9.9 was about to be fulfilled by him. Jesus was deliberately announcing to the people, I am the Messiah, when he chose to enter Jerusalem that way. Do you ever think about it that way? I wonder if Jesus explained that to the two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. But there's another word from the prophets. How about the fact that Jesus suffered and died? Is that mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament? You got your Bibles there, right? Turn to Psalm 22. When Jesus died on the cross, as He was there on the cross and suffering on the cross, at one point in exasperation, while the Whole earth had gone dark. Jesus cried out. Do you remember the words that He cried out? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthanai? Which is translated, Psalm 22, verse 1. Look at it. Listen to this. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? So Jesus, by crying out those words from the cross, is identifying Himself as the suffering servant of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David, who was Jesus' ancestor according to the flesh. He was also the king that Jesus, being a king, would be in succession to. David was promised that someone would always sit on his throne because God loved him, set his seal on him. That seal is on Christ Jesus, who is the descendant of David, who will sit on the throne forever and ever. Jesus links himself with that by crying out, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now listen to the rest of Psalm 22. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Can you imagine being walking with Jesus for seven miles and having him break this kind of thing down for you? They're disappointed and sad because Jesus died. He's showing them that the Old Testament said that he was supposed to. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season and am not silent, but you are holy Enthroned in the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Listen to this. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Literally, this is what the chief priests said while Jesus was hanging on the cross. They walked by and said, Aha! And they said things like, Save yourself if you're the Son of God and come down from the cross. Even the thieves mocked and said, Save yourself and us. All fulfillment of prophecy. All exactly as foretold in the Old Testament. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. We know that when Jesus was born, he was born for a purpose, to serve God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like raging and roaring lion. Look at this. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. You know, it's a picture of the horror of crucifixion. My heart is like wax melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my, my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. Listen to this. If you've never heard this before, this should blow your mind. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. That literally happened while Jesus was on the cross. They literally took his clothes and they said, let's not tear it. It's a really nice garment. Let's cast lots and see who's got it. That was a fulfill- Even that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Details. Details. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of wild oxen. And then this, you have answered me. Right? And then it goes on to speak to the glory of this one, which which when originally written had personal relevance to David and deliverance for him, but in a much greater and more meaningful and eternal way looked ahead to Jesus and how God would make Jesus one day when he returns to be the king who sits on David's throne. So Jesus is walking with these guys on the road to Emmaus and breaking all this stuff down for them. You and I have the opportunity to sit and read and learn the very same things that Jesus shared with His own mouth with these two guys. We really have no excuse for not knowing the truth. The world languishes because it has forgotten God. You know, I was just listening in my Bible listening. I was listening through Jeremiah and Jeremiah, one of the things that he spoke on behalf of the Lord was the fact that the Lord was really angry with his own people because one of the things that they did is they made idols for themselves. They made idols out of trees and they made idols out of rocks. And they would take lumber and they would carve it into idols and worship it. And they would they would take rocks and they'd, they'd chip it and shape it and carve it into statues and worship them. And And Jeremiah, speaking for the Lord, was saying things like, this is something that no one has ever heard of in the history of the world. They're, they're taking the rocks which I made and shaping them into images to worship that can never speak to them or answer them. They're taking trees which I spoke into existence and they're carving them into gods that they can bow down and worship. When, I, when, when those images can never answer them, but the one who made the wood, the one who made the rocks that they made the idols out of, They ignore and they've forgotten. And that's like the whole world. Now, to this day, you read some of that Old Testament stuff and it seems like it's so distant and it's so far removed. What does it have to do with it? Listen, the world has forgotten God. We've drifted so far from God. We're so far from God that He made them male and female is not enough for people anymore. That's how far we've drifted from the knowledge of the truth. Jesus is giving them the truth as they walk down that road. And you and I have the same truth. The same truth. We really are, as Romans 1 says, without excuse. If we don't know God, And we don't know his way of salvation. And we don't have faith in Jesus, his son, who died to pay the price for our sins and rose from the dead. Turn ahead to Isaiah chapter 53. This one I have to read to you. Actually, 52. Isaiah 52 and verse 13. I mean, some of these things are written centuries before Jesus was even on the earth. Isaiah, Isaiah was written seven centuries before Jesus was even born. As I read this, I want you to think to yourself that this was something written 700 years before Jesus was on the earth. Psalm 18 is even older than that. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you, just as many as were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. Right? In other words, Isaiah, speaking about the fact that Israel would, because of their disobedience and their captivity, which was coming, would be an astonishment to all the nations around them, so... Messiah, the servant, when he came, he would similarly. His visage means his appearance. In other words, when Jesus came, he wasn't going to be someone that everyone was going to go, wow, look at him. In his suffering, he was beaten. He was flogged. And he became someone that people looked at and was like, wow, man, God has really forgotten him, which is what they said about Israel back in the day. His form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Speaking of the fact that his death and his sacrifice would be for the salvation of Israel and Gentiles. Who would believe in him? Look at chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. In other words, he was nothing special to look at. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Th- this is Messiah. Understand, this, this is a description of Messiah. He, their expectation was he would come and he would be this glorious figure who would kick out the Romans and be this political and military savior. Here's who he is. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We didn't look at him and say, yay, Jesus. When he accomplished what he came to do, the people didn't say, wow, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. No, they hid themselves. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely, ready, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. We liked it. Smitten by God and afflicted. That's that's what we did. We looked and said, well, I guess God wasn't in him. God wasn't really with him. That's why this happened to him. But, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. Ah. Can you imagine walking down that road with Jesus. And having Jesus reveal to those guys. That Isaiah the prophet taught. That Messiah needed to die. And when he was dying. He was dying for our sins. He was dying for your sins. There it is right there. Why did Messiah die when he came? Because he bore the penalty for our sins in his body when he died. Hallelujah. Because if Jesus doesn't bear the penalty for our sins, you're stuck being responsible for it yourself and you have no chance to stand before God. So hallelujah that Jesus died for us. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, which is like punishment, the punishment, if you will, for our peace, upon him. And by his stripes, right? Stripes are wounds. The wounds that he received when he was flogged. The wounds that he received when they mashed a crown of basically wooden nails on his head. The wounds that he received when they put nails through his hands and his feet and pierced his side. Those wounds do what? They kill. By his wounds, we are healed. By that which killed him, we were the opposite of killed. We were healed. That's why Messiah suffered and died. So and like and like these these guys are walking to Emmaus, Cleopas and his friend, and like we're sad because we thought he was going to save us. We thought he was the Redeemer of Israel, and I guess he wasn't. And Jesus is like. The prophet Isaiah said that when the Messiah came, he had to suffer like that so that you can be redeemed. You couldn't be redeemed. He couldn't be the Savior of Israel or anyone else unless he suffered like that. And what makes it all remarkable on Easter Sunday is that he's saying this after he had done it and after he had risen from the dead. You can read, for time's sake, you can read the rest of Isaiah yourself, but I I can't not read to you one passage that also prophesied. Because they were like, these women amazed us. They went and why the, the tomb was open and his body wasn't there. I wonder if Jesus shared from Psalm 16, another David psalm, I have set Yahweh always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Listen. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Sheol is a word that just generally describes being dead. Death. The place of the dead. Sheol. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is a psalm written by David. And both Peter and Paul, in their sermons later on, as recorded in Scripture, point out the fact that when David wrote that, he could not have been speaking about himself. Because David was dead and his body was still in the tomb. So David must have been speaking about someone else. Guess who he was speaking about? The promised one, the chosen one, the holy and anointed one, who would come, the Messiah. He would not be left in Sheol. He would not be left dead. He would not be allowed to see corruption. There's only one way to escape that. That's to rise from the dead, right? Right? So even Psalm 16, not only did the scriptures foretell that Jesus must suffer and die, but the scriptures foretold that he would not stay dead, that he would rise from the dead. And so they're walking down the road. And there's other scriptures for time's sake I won't share, talking about how he's going to come again and and all of this. He probably broke it all down for them. And, you know, they're going down the road that day. And they finally came to the place. And he says he's going to go, but they beg him to come in and stay because the day is far spent. And he sits down and he does what? He breaks bread at the table with them. And as he's breaking bread, that's the moment. You know why? Because at the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread is symbolic of the sacrifice that he made, right? So at the moment he breaks bread, their eyes are opened and they realize it's him. And as soon as they know it's him, poof, he disappears. In that moment. That would make an impression. You know what they do? Listen to this. I love verse 32. They, add, they ask each other what? Didn't our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? If you get, if you get your mind into the word of God, that's what it ought to do for you as well. Make your heart burn. I want, we don't like heartburn and we take medicine to make it go away. (laughs) But spiritually speaking, we want our hearts to burn with zeal for God. And as Jesus shared the scriptures with them, that's what happened. And that's what we want. That's what you want. That's what you need repent get the garbage out of your life get the filth out remove the influences in your life that obscure being amazed by the truth of god you haven't been sitting here that long you've been here for 90 minutes today is it really is it really that much of a chore to be in a place for 90 minutes and have god's word revealed to you that you took more than 90 minutes to walk 7 miles i think right I think it would. Even for someone in shape. You know what they did? You know what they did? They walked seven miles. If I walked seven miles, it would probably be another week before I decided I wanted to go to walk anywhere. You know what they did? They got up and they turned around and they walked seven miles back to Jerusalem. Because that's what... The truth of God can do. It could just spill into your whole life. And suddenly we need to get back there and tell them this. And when they get back there to tell them, Jesus is there in the room. Peace be to you. That's so Jesus, right? Yeah. And when they're like, uh, uh, he's like, you got anything to eat? And so they give, which is what I would have asked too, right? So in that that respect, but, but he's like, you know, so they give him fish and he sits there and he eats and they're all staring at him while he's sitting there eating like, listen, Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the dead and we have no excuse for not knowing it, believing it, loving it and praising God for it. And that's what I have for you on Easter today.